We are just a local church that wants to receive those who know their hearts are wicked and they want to be delivered from their sin. We are so blessed to be able to be together as a local church. We're a church in its infancy, really. We have just been going since uh, Sunday, January 4th. And we're coming up on our first year anniversary. And one of the things that we have started to do, we have a little bit of a tradition that we've started, and that is on uh, any uh, fifth Sundays of a month, uh, we decided that we would do just a fun little question and answer time. And uh, we have done that once before, and we want to do it again this morning. So this is not necessarily regular for us. I usually go through uh, exposition of Scripture. We're going through the Gospel of John in the morning and the book of Ephesians at night. But sometimes it'd be good just to take a little bit of a break and to be able to have what the kids say in children's ministry, a sword drill. And uh, maybe this is an opportunity for you to, to ask a question. Now, Devin in the back has a uh, roving microphone. And in order to catch that uh, question on the tape as it's recorded, uh, you can ask any question you want. I don't guarantee I know the answer to any of them. But uh, if you want to ask a question, any kind of Bible question, would love to try to help you in any way I can, all right? So if you have a question, we've been advertising this, you just raise your hand and Devin will get that mic to you and we'll try to answer any question. Yes? Pastor, this is... Uh question about how to use that sword. Yes. We've been called to live uh, lives of quietness and peace. And that uh, we live in tumultuous times. The end is near. Will there be times as Christian warriors, spiritual warriors, that we are called to maybe uh, uh, gather in mass and protest with potentially even signs like at uh, places like Planned Parenthood? How and when are things like that appropriate, and uh, what circumstances and uh, authority? Great question. Great question. I would say there are times in which we would be called together, either as a one local church or as several local churches in a community, you know, to protest what is going on uh, within our world. It might be in a local context, might be in a national or international context. I think that is appropriate. Uh, I think there, there are times in which if something uh, is going on uh, for which we need to speak out as Christians, uh, we should do so. I think the real uh, motive behind doing something like that is not so that we can get media coverage. I think there are, when we should do those things, times when out of our own broken hearts we approach those who might be sinning against the Lord in such a way that we would approach them and appeal to them uh, not to do such a thing. Uh, we probably should set the foundation for an answer to a question like that. So go to Romans 13 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 13. We read a little bit in 1 Timothy 2 about leading a quiet and, and godly life, and we should do that, and we should make our testimony such that people are not wondering why we look so angry, but that we are quiet and dignified, the Bible says, as we read it this morning, and we should, in a sense, not trust our government so much as rely upon them. 
Because in Romans 13, verse 1, it says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now that is a profound statement by the Apostle Paul, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those governments that exist have been instituted by God. And of course I know Christians can sometimes choke on that fact. You mean to tell me that our government, and maybe we're not always talking about the government of the United States, but as you see governments around the world that seem to be very corrupt, uh, they seem to be very out of control, are you saying that those governments in existence have been instituted by God? This is what the Bible says. In other words, God is in sovereign control of every government of the world. He's providentially controlling them, even as he providentially allows some of them to live in corruption, even sometimes against their own people. You say, how is that fair? Well, remember, God has a plan. And he's executing that plan. He's allowing that plan to work itself out under his sovereign control for his providential purposes. Now, we may not, as human beings, always understand what those purposes are. But we know this. The Bible tells us very clearly that one day, every single wrong will be righted. Every single person who has sinned against God in an egregious way, whether they're governments or corporate governments or individuals, God will deal with every one of those issues and He'll deal with it righteously and fairly and substantially. All of those things God will deal with. Look at verse 2. Romans 13, 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, immediately, you begin to ask yourself the question, well, wait a minute, if that government is corrupt, if they're doing that which is opposite of what they should be doing, shouldn't we stand against it? Shouldn't we fight against it? Well, beware of what you're doing because you may be resisting God himself and what he's doing. Because it says there, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And then he gives us the, the reason for governmental structures in our world. For rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Did you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval. For he, that is government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, he being the government. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, submissive, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, most of the time, not all of the time, certainly, but most of the time, we ought to be in submission, subjection, to the governmental authorities over us. And we do so because, generally speaking, and there are notable exceptions to be sure, but generally speaking, we are under the government's authority 
because we're looking to that authority so that we don't have to take personal vengeance ourselves on wrongdoers. And we're asking the government on our behalf as the populace to ask God through that government to make right the wrongs that are being done. Now someone's going to immediately ask the question, well what if the government itself is involved in the wrongdoing? Well the first thing you and I ought to do is what we did today according to 1 Timothy 2 and that was to what? To pray. To pray. Now when there is a time for action, we can do some actions. You say, well, what are the ground rules? What are the guidelines? Well, for instance, as the question was asked, in our particular government, the government of the United States, which, by the way, is not a democracy, so-called, it's a Republican form of government, right? It's a republic. That means we have Republican representatives who are to represent us in this government. And one of the things that we can still do in this country is that we can do what is commonly called civil protests. And you and I can legally, and according to God's word, protest when it appears that our government is doing that which they should not do from a biblical basis. And that has its grounding rooted in the very Bible that we've just read from Romans 13. You remember John the Baptist. And you remember why he had his head lopped off. And it was because he confronted whom? Herod. He confronted Herod. And he says, your personal lifestyle is not glorifying to God. Now, he paid the ultimate price for that. But he was a righteous man and he stood up against an unrighteous government. And there are times for that. Look in the book of Acts. Go to, I think it's Acts chapter 4, maybe. And in Acts chapter 4, you might have remembered this particular passage. Uh, let's maybe go to verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Uh, the government, of course, was against those who were preaching in the name of Jesus. Now, this, of course, is a bit of a different context but we're, because we're talking about what might have amounted at that time to what we could call a theocracy, uh, God ruling uh, through religious leaders who were both religious and governmental at the same time. And, of course, they were preaching uh, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, according to verse 10. And uh, these men, Peter and John, we're preaching the Lord Jesus, that he was crucified, that God raised him from the dead, and that these men were, in a sense, challenging these religious leaders, who were also governmental officials, to be saved. And he says in verse 12, and there is, uh, these men, Peter and John, said, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been in the band of disciples with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they healed a man, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, uh, sort of this uh, government proceeding, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But 
in order that it may spread no further this message of salvation in Jesus, which was, of course, against their religious convictions, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. What name? name of Jesus. So they called them back into this proceeding and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But then notice verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it, it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they were speaking, preaching, declaring with boldness, the Bible says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Jesus. That he died, that he was buried, that he was raised again from the dead. And there is no other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. No other name. And I believe that that helps us set a precedent. That if our government were to tell us you can no longer speak the name of Jesus to us or to your community. And if they were to tell us, then we have good, solid biblical grounds to say, we shall not obey that command of yours. Now, there are a lot of other things that our government may tell us that we can or can't do, which we have to determine. Is this biblical? Is this right to do? Should we back off of this and not be so dogmatic? Well, it depends on what the Bible teaches us. We have black and white and we have gray. And I would say the answer to your question is, when we believe that that issue is black or white, when it is absolutely clear from God's Word that to either tell us you can't do it when we know we should, or to tell us that we should do it when we know we can't, then we say we must answer to God and God chiefly and not yourselves, and then we'll pay the price for it. Now, for instance, there are some countries of the world that say that you cannot speak out against certain moral or social issues of the day, homosexuality being one of them. It's a form of hate speech in some countries. And if you spoke out against that and said homosexuality is a sin against the Lord and it is not to be tolerated, then you could be in big trouble. And there are those professing believers who have said such things and have gotten in very, very hot water and have been imprisoned themselves. Some people have been imprisoned, of course, just by gospel preaching in some countries that don't tolerate Christianity in their midst. So the question is, is it right to protest? Well, it depends on what it is. And my answer to that question is you, you have to be very, very clear on a biblical, justified basis on what you would say you must protest against. And it could be something that you're for, that they're against, or something that you're against and they're for. And you have to be very, very careful. And I would say the first rule of thumb is to go to the leaders of your church and to find out, is my conviction accurate? Is my conscience clear on this matter? And right now, we have the kind of government where we can even talk about this in a public place and have no fear of reprisal. But that may not always be the case. Now, the, the particular example that I think was mentioned was, is it okay for us? Is it right for us? Or even this, is it demanded of us that we either as individuals or as a local church body go and protest at a place like Planned Parenthood? And the answer to that, in my judgment, is I certainly don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's automatically wrong. 
but I'm not necessarily convinced that it's always right to do given individual and particular circumstances with any Planned Parenthood or some other group, it might be more effective to begin to develop relationships with those people who are a part of Planned Parenthood. It might be better to approach them individually. But if in doing so, uh, you hit brick walls, might be appropriate to go. And if you do stand outside on the sidewalk and you protest in the sense that you say, uh, this is murder and abortion is wrong, and the idea of collecting uh, stem cells or, or a material uh, from aborted babies, uh, even if they think there's virtue in why they're doing it, uh, you should do everything that you do engage in with respect and honor, not with vitriol, not with anger, uh, the kind of anger that may move far beyond righteous anger into the kind of thing that you and I have seen on television uh, where the, the, the cameras have caught uh, professing Christians being out of control. <coughs> I think we have to be very, very careful with that. That's a very short answer to a very, very difficult question, but I think that at least helps us get toward the right answers to those questions. All right, what else? Yes. I was wondering what the, our response should be as Christians to the Syrian uh, refugees that um, are going to all the different countries because some people are on one end of it saying that it's going to be the downfall of us and at the other end saying Jesus would never turn them away. So I just was wondering what our response should be. It's a great question, the question of the Syrian refugees and whether or not our country is doing its due diligence in examining each of these refugees and finding out whether or not uh, they are involved in Muslim extremism terrorism. Um, I'm like you. I have certain visceral reactions immediately when I think of someone coming into our country who may, who may have the motive of wanting ultimately to destroy our country. I have those same visceral reactions. And what I have to do is what every person needs to do, not just Christians in our Christian communities, but, but every American citizen needs to do, and that is, first of all, pause think, think about the implications of such things, and to do what Romans 13 is encouraging us to do, and that is, at least at this point, as much as you and I may not totally respect every single elected official, including those on a local and then ultimately on a, on a national level, we do trust God, and we must trust God that He has a plan whereby our elected governing officials are involved in the right kinds of processes in handling this issue. Now, I'm like you, I watch the television news also, and I hear things from some of these elected officials that don't make sense to me. They confuse me, and sometimes they confound me. And what that does, especially for Christians, is to cause me not to punt to prayer, as though, well, I can't do anything about it, or uh, in addition to what I don't like about it and what I need to do to speak out about that, I'll pray about it. We ought to go first and foremost to prayer. And, and I have not heard, frankly, a lot of Christians, as they have tried through social media especially, 
to talk about some of these passages like 1 Timothy 2. I hear a tremendous amount of criticism, however justified it may be in some cases, about our president and about some of these in the U.S. Senate and in the House of Congress, uh, the United States House of Representatives, where there seems to be, especially at the hand of Christians, so much criticism that I don't hear a lot about 1 Timothy 2, 1 and following. I don't hear a lot about getting on our faces and asking God to deal with those who don't represent Him rightly. And I think that's our first and most ardent weapon. Uh, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You may not have thought about this particular passage in the subject that we're talking about, but I think it applies perfectly to the situation that we're talking about. And we could interchange into that argument, not just Syrian refugees who are attempting to come in our country or other countries, uh, but, but other matters uh, for which Christians can either disagree or sometimes uh, we can very much uh, be at odds with each other as professing Christians about what the right thing to do is. One set of Christians could be on one side of the ledger, another set of Christians could be on the other side of the ledger in terms of how to deal with the Syrian refugee crisis or other crises uh, in our world. But look at chapter uh, 10, verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Here's what Paul says. And just plug in any issue that you might think of, including the Syrian refugee crisis. For though, Paul says, we walk in the flesh... Now, what he doesn't mean there is that we're carnal, okay? Sometimes that word, in the flesh, is used by Paul in other contexts to talk about non-Christians, okay? But here, because he's talking to Christians, he's simply saying that we're human, okay? So take out that phrase, in the flesh, and just think to yourself, he's saying, for, even though we're human, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words... We're human, but we're not carnal. Okay? We're human beings. We're, we're here in this flesh. We're in this body. But we don't want to wage our warfare according to the flesh, according to the dictates of the world, according to carnal weaponry. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare, and this is spiritual warfare, not literal, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they're not carnal, uh, they're, they're not fleshly, they're not uh, sinful ways of dealing with our world, but our weaponry, our warfare, we have divine power to destroy what? Strongholds. What are these strongholds? Verse 5. We destroy, and then what's the next word? Arguments. Okay, now we're talking about not uh, uh, fighting with weapons, uh, not guns, not knives, not uh, the, the kinds of weaponry that you see, uh, not uh, somebody with a, uh, with a bomb you know, taped to their chest uh, where they're going to be someone who's a suicide bomber. We're not talking about that. We're talking about ideologies. Arguments, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. These are thoughts coming through people's words. They're speaking sentences. They're, they're forming ideologies, arguments, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, what is true about God. 
And we are bound, Paul says, to take every thought, every ideology that someone brings us, every sentence, every, um, every kind of uh, law or, or reason that people bring to us that is not the knowledge of God, not what is true about God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Which I take to mean this. We best know our Bibles. We better know the Word of God. We better know what it says. We better know how it refutes these ideologies. Do you know that for for every uh, Muslim extremist, every terrorist, they are doing what they're doing because they have an ideology? They're doing it uh, even if some of them are not as witting as their, their neighbor. They're still doing it because they think what they're doing is right. It's got right reason attached to it. It's got a, a, a right worldview attached to it. They think that. Now, of course, we believe they're wrong. We believe that Allah is not the God of this universe, that Yahweh God, just as our kids taught us in that play. And they do not ascribe to that kind of theology. And yet, because they're sold out to that view, to that ideology, we ought to work to take every thought in their minds and we ought to bring it in captivity to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. How do we punish that? Well, we don't march in opposition against them. Well, they're going to do this to us, so now we have to kill all of them. No, unless, of course, you're defending yourself and you're defending your country against their aggression. This is a battle for the minds of men and women. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians is what we ought to tell ourselves, and that is for every ideology that's out there, even practical problems like should we let these people into our country? And my answer to that, of course, is because we have a measure of religious liberty in our, in our country, we ought to interview every single one of them. We ought to find out who they are, where they've come from, and what their ideologies are. Now, of course, you'll say, well, that's naive because they could be flat out lying, right? Yes, that's true. But who are we trusting? We're trusting our God. We're asking our God to give us help. We're asking our God to give us protection. And so we pray, and we fervently pray, and we pray more, and we intercede, and we pray for our government, and we pray for their wisdom and for their intelligence. You say, so that they might bring every thought in captivity to Christ? No, that they do exactly what Romans 13 tells them to do. That they would punish evildoers. And if these people are attempting, some of them, to come into our midst so that they might wreak havoc later on, we'll pray that God, through Romans 13, will avenge the evildoing that is wrong, even before or certainly after those things happen. I know that's, that's a very surface-oriented answer, and there are, again, intelligent believers on different sides of this issue. But my response to that is, let's do the exegesis of what Romans 13 says, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, 1, Peter 2, 1, or 1 Timothy 2, 1-9, and a host of other passages that we can talk about privately that will give us a sense that the first and foremost response that we are giving to our 
to our people, to local churches and to other informed Christians is that we ought to pray and, and be on our faces, especially at this time when we see Muslim extremism seeming, seeming to become so much more powerful in our world. And not just those things. Of course, the powerful lobbies of those who are wanting to force their lifestyle upon us, including the homosexual lobby uh, that we see happening in our world. So whatever social, uh, religious, or ideological issue we're talking about, we have to pray intelligently and fervently that God will, will protect us and allow us to do what we do, in, in especially these contexts where we're worshiping and talking about things. So praise God that we're able to talk about this in a local church context, and we don't have the authorities bursting through our door and saying, you can't do that. You're all arrested. We could be in another country in which that takes place. Praise God, we still have time to pray and fervently pray for God's intervention and for God doing what he's designed the government to do, and that is to punish evildoers. Other questions? Thank you, Pastor Lance, for joining us this morning. Um, I was looking under the baptism section. Yes, ma'am. It says rebaptism. Yes. And I became a Christian in my late 20s, and by God's divine sovereignty and providence, has shown me that really my true conversion came probably about seven, eight years ago. And so I'm asking a question about rebaptism and what that means and if that's what it means when yes. conversion happens, a true conversion. It's a great question. I'm, I'm so appreciative that you've, you've raised that question because this can be sometimes uh, a thorny question. Uh, folks who have professed Christ can be very inquisitive about this because not only have they heard the term rebaptism, but they might even have a conscience that says, was I really converted when I was first baptized? And I think that is drawn out by the very passages of the New Testament. We don't have time to go through them all, but I'll kind of summarize them for you. When a person truly, genuinely comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that baptism is next. Baptism isn't for salvation. It's the expression of our salvation. When people are baptized, especially in a context like, for instance, we had, I think, 14 baptisms uh, here at the church not too long ago, and there were several re-baptisms, and almost every one of those testimonies in the waters of baptism was something like this. I thought I was a Christian. I thought I truly knew the Lord, but I didn't really know Him. Now, now that I'm older, uh, I was baptized, say, for instance, when I was 12 or, or something along those lines. Maybe it wasn't uh, that young. Uh, maybe it was someone who said, I thought I was a Christian. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I signed a card. And somebody told me I was a Christian. And then the next step in that church was to be baptized. And I did that because I was told that's what you do. The, the, the heart behind that is right. And the theology behind that is right. The question is, is every person who's baptized truly a believer? And what happens is that as people grow into their mature years, especially in their 20s and 30s and 40s, just like Charlie was talking about regarding his own testimony, sometimes people look back on when they first professed Christ and they say to themselves, you know, if I looked at my life from the time of that 
profession of Christ and then that first baptism, and now I've come to the conclusion that I didn't know Jesus at all. Because I wasn't obeying Jesus as Lord. And because Jesus is both Savior and Lord, I must receive Him as such. And I received Him as Savior, or so it seemed to me, way back when. And I was baptized. But I really didn't follow Him as Lord. And it's not until recently that I began to realize I'm, I'm really following Christ as Lord now. And sometimes they can actually point to a crisis event uh, or a series of events and say, you know what, that's when I was really, really a Christian. At that point, at that time, through those events, through those circumstances, through those crises. Or the Lord just sovereignly showed me my sin at that particular point and when I claimed Christ at that moment, now I've got the question, should I be rebaptized? And here's my answer to the question. For anybody who in their conscience is struggling with it, then be rebaptized for the sake of your conscience. Because while there's nothing magical about H2O, somebody going into water and being immersed and then coming back up, it is, however, even though symbolic as that is, it is a conscience pricking that you don't want to continue to grapple with over time. And so if you are re-immersed, re-baptized, then you can settle the conscience issue of your heart that I got the biblical process right. Because the biblical process is this. We're, we're Baptistic here at Thousand Oaks Bible Church. And when I say we're Baptistic, here's what we mean. That the Bible teaches so clearly in the New Testament, it is, it is irrefutable, the proof, that a person's conversion, their conversion to Christ, truly repenting and believing in Christ, must occur first. And then a person is baptized as a result of that conversion that shows outwardly and publicly the declaration that I have already become a Christian. In fact, turn your Bibles to, to Romans chapter 6, and I'll show you this. Now, the first thing I'll tell you is, in Romans chapter 6, there's no water there. There's no H2O. Okay? But what we're talking about is the symbol of what baptism meant in the first century in the New Testament, and what we're doing when people are commanded to be baptized in the New Testament sense, and what they're doing by their baptism. Romans 6.3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that's talking about regular baptism, uh, baptism, but from a spiritual viewpoint, notice, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that's spiritual baptism, okay? That's not water. But it's using water baptism as a symbol, okay? Kind of, kind of like an illustration. And that's really what baptism is. In fact, he goes on to tell us. He says we were, verse 4, buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What Paul is doing is he's taking what baptism is, and here's what baptism is, here's what we believe here, that when you're in those waters of baptism and the pastor baptizes you, he takes you down into that water and you are immersed in the water. You're submerged into the water. And that is symbolic of your old life. 
your old life of sin, your own life of wretchedness. And when you repent of that sin, and when you place your confidence and trust and reliance on Christ and Christ alone to save you, to redeem you, it's like when you come out of the water, like Paul says here in Romans 6, you are raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a wonderful picture of an inward reality. And someone says, you know what? Here's what I want to do. My conscience has been pricking me that I really wasn't truly born again when I did that baptism the first time. Now, if you are, and if you're confident in that, no problem. But if you're struggling with that, and several of those who were baptized prior here at the church, uh, several in that group of 14, they said, I'm convinced now beyond the shadow of a doubt because of knowing myself, knowing my experiences later in life, that I really wasn't genuinely a Christian. Now I want to do what the New Testament says and I want to get the order right. And the order that's right is salvation first and then your baptism second, which gives the outward and public declaration of what was happening. And what was happening in my conversion? You were buried spiritually in baptism unto death. You died. Your old life died. And you were raised to walk in newness of life. You're coming back up spiritually out of that deadness and you're now new. You're new in Christ. And that's what baptism pictures. And now you're being raised to walk in that newness of life. And that comes as an outward celebration, a declaration of what you're doing. Okay? So I would say if anybody is struggling with the idea of my first baptism, it's not as though the water didn't take, right? The H2O. That's not what we're talking about. Now, I know there are a lot of people who say, I just talked with somebody last week, who said, when I asked them, what does it mean, or, or they were asked in a meeting that I was in, what does it mean to become a Christian? And the first thing that person said was the mention of baptism. But see, salvation is conversion by the death of your old life and the rising of your new life with Christ. Okay, before, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and you were living that old life. You were living like Charlie was giving in his testimony. He was doing his own thing. He was walking away. He always kept God right there, but he was always walking away from God. And when God challenged him through that message of salvation as taught on the radio, he realized God can even save a person like me. And so if that person is that person who says, regardless of their previous baptism, I now know it's real and God has visited me right now in salvation. And I just right now pray to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of my life. Then by all means, the biblical precedent is to be baptized in a local church setting where you are declaring publicly that you are following Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's the right order. Now some people say, well, I've been a Christian for many, many years and I've never been baptized. That's an issue of disobedience. Because the Bible knows nothing. The New Testament, the book of Acts, knows nothing about an unbaptized believer. Knows nothing of it. It would be totally foreign to the New Testament writers that anybody would say, well, if conversion is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, but I don't care about that baptism thing you would be saying something so foreign to what the New Testament writer said. In fact, look at the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 2. Conversion and baptism were so closely aligned with each other 
in the first century that you even have it appearing in this verse to be synonymous with your conversion. Look at Acts 2.38. Peter was preaching, and when he was preaching, this is what he said. And Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, Repent, that's conversion, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if you weren't careful, you'd say, well, that, that seems to be saying that salvation is repentance and baptism. But if you follow the book of Acts, and if you see what it says, and if you understand the theology of it, to say nothing of the epistles of the New Testament, you find that simply what Peter is doing is telling them, especially in a context in the first century, where if you declared yourself to be a Christian, a part of the way, you were going to be ostracized from your family, you would be possibly imprisoned. Remember the Apostle Paul who was going to, on the Damascus Road to imprison those who are a part of the way, Christianity? You could be even imprisoned and ultimately possibly killed for your declaration. And when did that occur? It would occur at someone's baptism because they're publicly declaring that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And that's why Peter says to these Jews here, what, what should I do to be saved? And he says, repent, be converted, follow Christ. He's your Lord. He's your master. And in the doing of that, in the declaration of that, you are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I'm being baptized in his name. Matthew 28 18 to 20 says it this way, that you are being baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Three times, in the name of, in the name of, in the name of. That's what the, the Greek text says. And when you're doing that, you're saying, I'm following the triune God. And if you did that in the first century, you might likely be called upon with charges, especially if you were a Jew. And that meant something to them. I think today... Baptism means very little to certain people, if not many people. They say, well, it's just a symbol. It's, it's just this sign, as you've said. Yes, but what it does is that makes for you a public declaration that I am to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. I love Him, and I want to follow Him all my days. And when you do that, my friends, you are putting legs onto your conversion. You're putting action to it. And when you put action to it in the waters of baptism, you're also saying something like this. And I want you as a congregation to hold me accountable as a professing Christian that this baptism where I gave you my testimony, I was buried in this water, I was raised out of it to walk in new life, and now I want to have you hold me accountable to the new life that I'm living. You see? That's, that's what this is. That's why we do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It's a public declaration that if you're sitting here partaking with us of the Lord's Supper, you're naming yourself among us as professing Christians. And when you do that, you're saying, I'm, I'm with you. I'm aligned with you. And when Christians of old were to go through both baptism and the Lord's Supper, it cost them something. For us today, it's like, well, you know, the Lord's Supper, I know we're celebrating that at church today, but I'm so tired. I'm so weary. I think, I think I'll just sleep in today. If you were doing that in the first century, it would cost you something to go there, and that's exactly why you did it. Because you were ready to die for Jesus Christ in need. So let me encourage you. We're out of time. Let me encourage you. That's a great lead-in question 
to the idea that if you have professed faith in Christ, whether it's many years ago or even this morning, you, you've heard me talk about this idea of Jesus Christ having died, having been buried himself in that tomb and been raised, resurrected from the dead, and you say, that makes sense to me. Today is the day of my salvation. Today is when I want to repent. Today is when I want to follow Christ. I want to make that public declaration. The best way you can do that and the most immediate way is for you to be baptized, for you to respond to the Lordship of Christ by saying, if that's a command according to Matthew 28, and it is, then I want to be obedient to that command. If you say, I have been baptized before, I'm not totally sure if that baptism was valid, and you've got some conscience matters with that, then by all means be rebaptized and declare to your heart's content, I know I'm saved now. I know I'm delivered from my sin now. And I want to be rebaptized in the public declaration. I don't care who knows. In fact, I want everybody to know that I'm walking with Jesus. And if you are totally convinced that way back when your testimony was valid for Christ, even though you've had many, many bumps and potholes along the way, and you have no conscience at all about that prior baptism, then continue to serve the Lord. Continue to love Him and live under His Lordship all your days. Uh, nobody's binding anybody's conscience. But if you need to be rebaptized, I want to encourage you to do that. And we've got a baptism coming up, by the way, on January 10th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at Jim Vinci's Hot Tub. <laughs> and we want all of you to come, and especially those of you who want to be rebaptized, so you can publicly declare for the first and last time that in this baptism it's real and I'm following Jesus as Lord. Alright? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wonderful questions. Thank you for this opportunity and for this church and for the little tradition that we've started with questions and answers. It's so helpful. And I pray that you would give us all, as noble Bereans, as Acts 17.11 states, to examine the scriptures daily to see whether these questions and other questions that we have are truly so. Let us be these noble Bereans studying and doing everything we can to be obedient, to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to, to remain unspotted, unstained by the world. Thank you for every person who's come today, and may they return tonight at Bethany Church on the Hill to rejoice in the apostolic Pauline gospel for what he's most thankful for. We ask that you would give us a closing song and allow us to fellowship together as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.